They had nothing to make this hostage rescue with. They had shotguns and no shield, no rifles, just a shotgun and pistols and a lot of courage. So they, they make entry and he's in the corner, knelt down, he's, he's sitting on his, uh, on his butt and he's got the girls around him and the wife in front of him and they can barely even see him. And he starts shooting. Basically, he shoots him all. He has a shotgun. He shoots him all. Hostage rescue is obviously the hardest thing to do, and it's the most chance of somebody to get hurt. And usually, somebody does get hurt. An officer, a hostage, suspect, somebody. The information they had, the two suspects are in the back seat, and they shoot the two people in the back seat. And as they, they do that, the, uh, one of the officers pulls the driver out, pulls the undercover out, and she gets away, she's fine. And they pretty much shoot the two people in the back seat, kill them both, one of them, which is, is the undercover, is Larry. Yeah, I was 0311, an infantryman in, in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. And their training is known as generally being hard, but I, I did nothing harder than patrols we did in Vietnam. We were getting, obviously, we were getting shot at. So you know, I believe that you train, you know, you should train to prepare for worst case scenarios. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assisty Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. I'm Josh Rattel here with my cohorts, Joe King, Misty Van Curen, and Randy Aguilar. Before we get started, uh, we wanted to thank all the listeners for the overwhelming support. Joe, what are we up to on the downloads now? Uh, last I looked, it was 857, and that's just through two episodes that have been aired. That's awesome. So thank you to the ATO for letting us do this, and thank you, all of you, for listening and tuning in. It's an honor to introduce our next guest. He's a former service member of the United States Marine Corps Infantry in Vietnam, an honorably retired 40-year veteran with the Dallas Police Department, served in many different divisions, including patrol, SWAT, narcotics, in-service, and basic training. He was instrumental in implementing progressive tactical training for the Dallas Police Department. He currently runs Owen Riggs Firearms Training. He is on a podcast called SWAT Brothers and serves as a board member with the Dickey Foundation. Please welcome retired Lieutenant Robert Owens. LT, welcome and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks, LT. Sure. LT, you had quite a career at the Dallas Police Department. What, what year did you start? I started in May of 1974. That's year I was born. 
in 83. Wow. It kind of rolls into, I, I know we're focusing a lot on the training aspect, uh, not to take away from your years in SWAT narcotics, but that ties back to it. Uh, your, your desire and your passion for the uh, training and implementing uh, training standards and increasing the utilities for police officers. It speaks volumes of what you've done here and uh, you've left a footprint, as Joe was saying. You left a footprint, whether you know it or not. That that uh, though I know you probably think it's been washed away, but it but it has not. It obviously it resonates in young officers. It resonates in I know Misty and I, and Joe and Randy, uh, and many others that are, are long gone now. Um, can you identify a critical piece of operational experience or training that inspired you to continue and implement all this change? Yeah, I always looked at, at things and, and tried to uh, see how we could do it better. And a big thing I always I always talked about was, you know, look at a critical incident somewhere else. Like uh, Columbine's a good example, active shooter. And if you if you look at that honestly, and I was sitting at Central in the downstairs watching on TV when it was going on, and if you look at it honestly, you know that we would have done the exact same thing. You know, they got criticized a lot. What do you mean? They surround the building and wait for SWAT? People are being killed in there. That's what we did. That's what we would have done. If Columbine happened here, it would have happened the same way. Maybe Woody would have got in there sooner. Maybe not. But it wouldn't have been the change that was made. So I looked at that and I said, you know, how can we do that better? And the, the better way, who gets their first patrol? Mm -hmm. You train patrol in basically uh, you know, a quick entry to stop the killing. And that's all it is. You don't train to be SWAT. They don't need all the equipment. They need some of the equipment, but they don't need all the equipment. They don't need all the training. And so initially, we just kind of did it on our own, and then the state got involved, and they, it's a mandatory class now for <clears throat> rookie police officers. But that's, that's what I looked at. I looked at... Uh, there was an incident in uh, Georgia, Cobb County, Georgia. It was a uh, entry, SWAT entry on hostage rescue that uh, the probably wasn't all that necessary. It was the guy's mom, and he had fi fired some shots. And uh, anyway, the SWAT finally makes entry, and they go through. Of course, you got to remember the guy knows his, it's his house. He knows his house. They breach a single door. Uh, off the garage the first guy comes in he fires at them and misses the second guy comes he fires at the second guy hits him falls back out the door the third guy comes in hits him and kills the second third officer came through there and what came out of that was multiple breach points you know how can we do this more safely than going through one door everybody going through one door so they you know, that, that was a way to, and everybody does it now. You know, you do explosive breaching, you do at least two breach points, you do break and rake windows, a lot of things. like So it was, it was something that happened in Georgia that brought, you know, this technique to Dallas. And, you know, when I first proposed that, it was like, no, it's too dangerous. <laughs> uh, they were just like, they would have none of it. And uh, when I got, I... I I got Paul Howe to come here. Paul Howe's a former Delta Force uh, 
commando has a range in Nacogdoches, and uh, he was teaching that. And in fact, I sent Timmy to uh, teach, uh, yeah, TTPOA class, and he took his class, and then we brought him up here. And when, of course, when Paul, when a guy like that with those credentials says it, everybody's on board. And it's that was quite a while ago, and that was that was a couple examples. Rifles is the same way, you know. It was, you know, Dallas didn't want the cops to have a military gun, and they were dead set against it. And they even went to remember they went to the slug guns for a while. Mm-hmm. The SRTs, yeah. yeah, the SRTs, a, a rifled slug gun that only certain people could have, and you know the the answer is a patrol rifle. Again, getting the, those tools in the patrol officers' hands, the people are going to get there first. As far as the rifles goes, was the uh, that shootout out in L.A. did that did that have something to do with um, kind of spurring everybody to go the direction of getting rifles for agencies? I, that was a big one. Uh, it was. Uh, I don't know if you know the story or not, but you know the you hear the story about the L.A. cops going to a gun store. They're going in pawn shops trying to get long rifles. Did they shoot them? No, no they never fired them. They were afraid, they were because it was against policy and they weren't sighted in. Wow. I mean, I think you could do this, you know, you could have got us sighted in real fast you yeah. know, against a building or a car, but they never used them. Anyway, that was one of the big ones. The one for us was the che- bank robbery, robbers. They went through Richardson, mm-hmm. Garland. Yeah, up uh, there, yeah, that shooting right there off the ramp to George Bush. Right, and, uh, yeah, and you saw the, the windshield blow out. I went up there when that happened. And, I mean, there was cars shot up, police cars shot up everywhere. And it was almost like the guys just leave us, the bank robbers wanted the cops just to stop chasing them. Because once, you know, the car, the cop car stopped uh, and, the you know, the officer runs behind the car for cover, they drove off, fortunately. And that, it was funny because that weekend, the next weekend, I get a call from the range master, Paul Stanford, and he says, hey, the chief wants to meet uh, by rifle program on Monday uh, you know it's two days from now and said you come to the meeting and chief's office sure and that was Chief Conkel and Chief Garcia was uh, the chief over special ops at the time and uh, and I had we we had just gotten M4s or you know, a couple months before in SWAT I was in SWAT then. and so we'd done two or three classes of M4s and I had you know I had you always have the the people that don't show up. So I had a few uh, shitbirds who hadn't been to the class yet. <laughs> and so I had a class schedule for the following Monday, a week from the day of the meeting. And so I go in there with the chief. I said, I got the range scheduled, uh, and I can, you know, we can come up with this program in a week. And uh, if you want me to tell the big chief, and he said, yeah. And so I did, and he said, yeah, go. Very receptive to it. Yeah, he was. He had a couple concerns. His biggest concern was Chief Conkle. You know, uh, he didn't want officers like using utilizing this. You know, somebody fifty yards away with a knife. Right. Uh, right. And then the other thing he didn't want was it being too selective because what happened in those agencies? Every one of those agencies, uh, Garland, if I remember correctly, it was Garland, Plano, and Richardson. Every one of them had rifles, patrol rifles, but they all had caveats. One department it was only SWAT, part-time SWAT, so they're in patrol. 
Right. The other one, it was only sergeants. And the other one, it was you had to be recommended and pass his board to do it. Well, of course, none of those people were there or close enough to the chase. So everybody, every officer that showed up had a pistol and a shotgun. Nothing works out the plan. Yeah, yeah. So, so what the chief said was, I want everybody that wants to have a rifle given the opportunity. Now, they got to pass a class, and I expect it to be difficult, and it is. Uh, but I want, I don't want it to be, you know, who you know, you know, it's because you're the sorry, you know, the FDO or we the have sergeant. Enough of that. Yeah, there's plenty of that. And, you know, to this day, the first class we had, so next Monday, we do the whole program. Next Monday, uh, we do our first class. And uh, everybody, of course, has their own rifle because there wasn't time for the city to buy them in a week. And so they all show up, and we had like 20, 18 people, I think, and two failed first class. Wow. And uh, it's pretty much been that way ever since. And that, you know, and I, I like that because, you know, there's a really, in the Dallas Police Department, there's only three hard classes that you fail. Horses, motorcycle, patrol yeah, rifle. Yeah. Do you fail anything else? You fail SWAT school? Basic SWAT. Nope. Or do you go through it again? <laughs> or, you know, in narcotics, they're entry school. You fail it, well, you, you go eh, You go to the remedial. You go, and you through go through it again. And on this, you can go through it again, but you've got to go to the end of the list. So, yeah. You know, that, uh, that class, though, doing that <clears throat> paved the way, uh, actually implemented tactics into the patrol world. And I think from that point forward, I remember when that class started. It started at the very end of 2005. I was in class two in January 20, 2006. And uh, that kind of started the push for integrating tactics into the patrol world. From that point prior to that, I don't think there was much that was offered right and uh, I, I mean that that kicked it off right there and again it's just an, a testament to you forging forward and knowing that we need something and people you know knowing you and trusting you and trusting who you were at the same time but you being able to to speak logic into people we spend too much time on, as departments looking to see what other departments do and wanting to strive to be them instead of looking what's worked for others and what hasn't worked for others and then utilizing that to to create our own training program, to create our own utilities, to create, you know, our own department for others to strive at or look at. And I know you've always been very good at doing that. So, Yeah, one, one thing I like to say about that is, uh, like, when I was at the academy, I had one of the former lieutenants uh, come to me and he says, man, you made a bunch of good changes. How did you do this? And I said, you know, the only way I can do this because I had a good boss. And Floyd Simpson was a chief. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he pretty much, you know, I'd ask him, do you want to ask the chief about this? And he said, no, I'll tell the chief. We're going to do this. And when I'd have somebody, I'd call him up, hey, somebody, whatever, you usually failed two tests or a test twice. I'd call him up. Uh, we, you know, what do you do with him? We fire him. And he said, I said, do you want me to wait till you talk to the chief? And he says, no, I'll, you fire him. I'll tell the chief. And so people like that, you, you can only do so much, as, mm -hmm. as, especially as a lieutenant. You know, you come up with the ideas, you think of things, but if you don't get the approval from up top, you, you're dead in the water. You know, you can make some minor changes, but to think you can start a patrol rifle program without support from, you know, the chief, because you're talking a lot of money, a lot of people – 
Now that school is five days. So you take 20 people off the street for five days, they each shoot 1,500 rounds of ammunition. So that's a lot of money. So people like, I had people like Floyd and Charlie Cato that uh, really facilitated that. I couldn't have done it without them. I mean, it wasn't me. I mean, I, I had some of the ideas, most of the ideas I took from somebody else, like I said. I mean, I'd, a lot of this stuff I didn't come up with. I got it from somebody else. I stole it from them, which is fine. But I couldn't implement it without support. And sometimes you have support and sometimes you don't. Well, that's with anything. You get a lot of luck with who's going to support you because you can have the greatest idea. You can come up with the greatest project, and you can put it all together, hand it to them on a platter, and there, whoever you give it to may be too scared for it. Well, I don't want it to fail, so we'll just say no. You know, Or they try to tweak it to a bastardize it in a way that it doesn't look like what it should be or what it uh, was first created to be, and it either fails or you know, it's not as efficient. But getting a good commander to back you, that, that's that's key. And Simpson, uh, Chief Simpson was awesome. And uh, so was Chief Cato. And that's that's what Chief Kunkel should have done. It's not like he did. He listened to the people under him that said, this needs to happen. It needs to happen this way. Right. And I can understand a chief's a lightning rod for everything on the department, but it's... You know, he's going to make the decision. But if he listens to the people under him, we have a lot of problem here in Dallas. With people, a lot of the commanders at different levels are scared to listen to anybody that's below him. But it doesn't sound like Chief Kunkel had that problem. No, he, uh, <laughs> I remember Floyd told me one time, he said, you know, I, I threatened to throw, uh, I throw, threatened to throw him out his window one time when he was arguing <laughs> me about something <laughs> He He's talking about Conkle, throwing yeah. Conkle out of the window. And I, that's my man right there. Boy, I hated to see him leave. Yeah. And uh, there was others, too. Those aren't the only two. Chief Garcia was certainly involved in that. Uh, Freddie? Is that Freddie Garcia? No. Uh, Danny. Danny. Okay. Danny Garcia. Who's, uh, who He also left to become a chief in Phoenix. Phoenix? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there were people like that and one stars also. You know, one-star chiefs. You know, on my podcast, I was asked, can you can you tell me who you really thought was a good chief, number one? And I said, number one chief? And, uh, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I Not even not even 1A and 1B? Well, you know, I said. <laughs> All right. Now we're getting somewhere. Well, what I said was, what I said was, he says, you know, yes, I can, but not recently. And when I had, uh, and I would say David Conkle was as good as he could be, I guess, under the the restraints that are on top of him, you know, from the city manager's politics, office. Yeah. The politics. He's as good as he could have been. But, you know, and I had I had uh, Chief Kowalski on, the, mm-hmm. uh, Doug Kowalski, who I worked for a couple times. We're, we're lieutenants together in narcotics. I worked, he brought me over to SWAT when he was the captain. And uh, he's chief and prosper still. And uh, I asked him that question. He said, oh, Bobby, you're being too harsh. Uh, what about uh, Ben Click? I said, Doug, when was that? You know, that was that in the 20, at least 20 years ago. Oh, he, he was. 90s. Yeah, we, he was chief whenever we hired on in uh, 97. Yeah. And yeah. I think he maybe did a year after that. Yeah, we, 90, yeah. 99, I think, when he left. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I said, Click, heck yeah. Yeah, I put him on the list, uh, but 
I think just now the way things are, it's it's hard to be that way. It's hard to be a Ben Click or a, you know. A, they they really it, it appears to me from the you know from the outside, and I was on the outside when I was still in the department, as far as the politics in, on the sixth floor, but that the city manager really tried to make the chief, you're one of us, not one of them. And that seems to be the, the big difference between when back in the day chiefs and, and the now chiefs. They're not, I mean, I remember when things weren't, when chief before, after Kunkel got a 30% raise. You know? yeah. Did you ever get a 30% raise? <laughs> no. I'm and the officers didn't get a raise that year. And I think the chief, fire chief, police chief got 30%. All the other department heads got 20%. And we didn't get anything. Joe mis mentioned being a commander, and I had the privilege, LT, to work for you. And you are a true commander, a gutsy, a ballsy commander that wasn't afraid to make a decision under pressure. And I would follow you into anything. But I want to paint a picture for people listening how you created training. And training day was your day, and you, you didn't miss training. You were in full gear. It started at 6 a.m., which meant it, start, it started at 5, and we stayed the whole time, the 10 hours, in the gear, and we froze, we sweated, and those pieces that you implemented created a work ethic, and it created stress in training, and, and that stress carried over to be able to perform an operation. So I want the listeners to hear your philosophy on creating stress and making people uncomfortable in training and how it how it shows up on operations. Yeah, it's it's you know it's the old saying. You know, I guess I learned that in the Marine Corps uh, that you know I was you know, I was O three eleven infantryman in, in uh, the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and their training is known as generally being hard. But I, I did I did nothing uh, harder than than the, the, hot, the patrols we did in Vietnam. The training we did in, Cal, in Camp Pendleton was not nearly as hard. as We carried more weight. It was hotter. We were getting, obviously, we were getting shot at. So you know, I believe that you train, you know, you should train to prepare for worst-case scenarios. And what I think SWAT's bad about, and, and police in general are bad about, is expecting everything to go right, you know, that... You know, hey, Dal Swat is here, and the guy's gonna, you know, wet his pants and and come out crying. And most of the times they do, but every once in a while they don't. And that's when things, just like this this guy in Cobb County, he wasn't any, you know, super trained person. He was just a guy with a shotgun inside his own house, and he wasn't going to go to jail. And he's going to make him kill him, which they eventually did. So. My my philosophy always was you train for the guy in Cobb County, not for the the ninety five percent of the people who are going to give up. Just like traffic stops, you know, oh, it's routine traffic stop. Uh, the first uh, officer, I, I came out in seventy four, like I said, and we had I was at Northwest, and we had two officers killed in the uh, in uh, within two weeks in November of seventy six. And the first one was a, a routine traffic stop. It was cold. I was working that night. It was real cold, and uh, nobody was out. And uh, the people, were, the two officers were sitting there, and a uh, car comes over the bridge into West Dallas with the lights off. 
go tell him to turn his lights on. Uh, you wait here. And he tells his partner, wait, wait in the car. You know, it's cold. So he walks up to the car uh, to tell him to turn his lights on. He's not going to write him a ticket. He's not going to arrest him. He's not worried about anything. And he gets shot and killed uh, for, because the guy didn't know that. He thought he was going to, he just committed, I think it was a robbery. And he thought the officer knew that. So he, he shoots him. And so those things, that's what I, you know, I tried, just like at the academy, I tried to tell the rookies, you know, that's how you need to treat every car stop because, you know, 99.9% are going to be, hey, turn your lights off. Thanks, officer. Uh, but that one time, you know, uh, you know, you're not going to survive it. So the same, so that's why I, I tried to do with the SWAT training. You got to wear this stuff on operations. You got to wear it on training. It's cold out. Well, it's going to be cold out tonight if we get called out. It's hot. Well, it's, you know, it's hot. So you try to train to get used to the uh, conditions. So anyway, that's, I guess, train as you fight or, you know, as you expect. Uh, but I think a lot of people train for uh, best case. You know, everything's going to turn out all right. I mean, I see some pictures of, you know, this guy's not wearing his helmet. You know, this guy doesn't have his vest on, you know. Well, it's heavy, you know. Well, that's why you get to work out, you know. I mean, that's... <laughs> right. But it's not a problem until it turns into a problem. Yeah. And, 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 and sadly, it takes, in some cases, a, just a shitty, tragic incident to make people wake up and say, damn, I need, I need to be better. I need to train better. I need to work harder. I think cops are the, most, the best Monday morning quarterbacks in the world because we learn from mistakes. And um, Did they ever catch that? That was Robert Woods, right, that was killed? Yes. Did they ever, did they ever catch his killer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they caught him. It was a big... Uh, it was, they made a movie out of it. And now it wasn't his fault, and the, the killer's fault. Uh, I think he ended up getting paroled after that, didn't he? So yeah, that that you're talking about that movie that was on that's on Netflix, that, yeah, and Blue Line, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah they caught him, uh, and uh, but you know it's uh, he's still dead. So you know, he just maybe if he'd been a little more careful, uh, you know, he just you think about it, just think about it. We've all done it. It's yeah. very oh. very cold. I'm not worried about. You know, I'm not going to arrest this person. I'm not even going to write him a ticket. I'm just going to tell him turn crap on. Turn your lights on. And they're going to be happy and smiling and thank you, officer. Well, the bad guy, obviously, is a bad guy. And he sees an officer approaching and he just assumes that that officer is investigating what he did. Oh, yeah, they know exactly what he did. They're coming to arrest him. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so he's just, you know, fighting to not have to be arrested. So, uh, yeah, it's... Stuff, LT. In your four decades of of seeing changes in policing in a major city in Dallas, um, one thing that that you you were over that that happened in December of 1991, with a uh, it was a it was an undercover narcotics operation that that went that went awful. Uh, can you kind of talk about that? Yeah, it, it was a uh, it was a by bus. It was two uh, two officers, and they were going to uh, they'd already made purchases, and they were going to buy these drugs. And then there was an arrest team around the corner in the van. Pretty much standard procedure. You have a, a surveillance car, which is a you know a, an unmarked uh, covert car, 
with a couple of people in it, and they're watching the actual transaction, and then the the arrest team is around the corner because uh, it's in a van. It looks it looks pretty obvious. So uh, they the van doesn't have eyes on the the surveillance does. So they're in the car, and of course we can't hear uh, the body mics. You know, you, you could hear partial partially what was said. Well, the uh, the officer who got killed, he was, the, the two officers were in the front seat, uh, female dri- driver, and then Larry was uh, the right front. And then he got, what we believe happened is that he got worried because he was thinking it might be a ripoff. So he he exchanged places with the uh, uh, person in the back right. So he goes from the front right seat to the back right seat. Remember, this is an undercover car, so the you know windows are tinted probably a little more than the state allows, and it's nighttime. And so there's so the undercovers in the driver's seat, suspect next to her, suspect behind her in the back seat, and Larry's in the right rear seat. And the suspect pulls a gun on. Uh, on the uh, driver and says, you know, let's get out of here. And he wants to go to secondary location, which is always a, a very no-no in narcotics transaction. You don't go any, you don't go to another place. So she's pretty sharp, and uh, she fumbles with the keys and drops them on the floorboard, like she can't find them. Yeah, just stolen. And then they're making, the, they're calling for help. You know, the, the bus signal. Mm-hmm. So. Here comes the, the arrest team in the van. And what do they know? They weren't told that anybody got out of the car and moved positions. Right. They were t- the, not, the information they had was suspects are both in the back seat. The officers are both in the front seat. So they go driving up there. They get out of the cars. And back then, all they had was shotguns and pistols. One officer goes around to the driver's door to pull the driver out, the officer. And just as they're opening the door to to the back to uh, extract the suspects, who they think are both in the back seat, mm-hmm. fire comes from the back right seat directly through the seat into the right front passenger, who they think is Larry. They think Larry's in the passenger seat because that's where he was last time they were told. Right. But it's actually Larry couldn't wait for he couldn't wait any longer. He thought this guy was going to kill the driver. He was shooting. The, shooting so he the shot through right. the seat at the suspect who was threatening his partner. And it's one of these: your hand is reaching for the door, and you can't see through the windows because they're mm-hmm. so tinted. And they, uh, so they, uh, the information they had: the two suspects are in the back seat, and they shoot the two people in the back seat. And as they they do that, the uh, one of the officers pulls the driver out, the, pulls the undercover out, and she gets away. She's fine. And they pretty much shoot the two people in the back seat and, and kill them both. One of them, which is is the undercover, is Larry. So you responded to that scene, or were you already out there? I I wasn't out there. I I was uh, I don't know. I think I was. At that time, I think we we're still on one. We had one lieutenant there, and I, I was working days that day. I responded to the hospital. I didn't go to the scene. That 
I can't imagine. I mean, especially I've been on close knit units before, and and I can't imagine having to deal with that uh, from an emotional standpoint of of that. Just it was a mistake, but that's that's a big mistake. I don't know that the the officers, the detectives there. I mean, how do they take that? Were they just devastated? Oh yeah, yeah. They were. Uh... They're they're in bad shape. Most of them left the department soon after that. Uh, uh, but uh, some of the in the uh, the ones who fired shots, the one who pulled the uh, Kathy out of the car, uh, he stayed until he retired. The ones who fired the shots didn't stay much longer after that. I, I don't really know. Of course, they were obviously transferred out of the, the unit. Uh, they didn't stay very long after that. One was uh, the sergeant was eligible to retire, and he retired. I don't think he fired any shots. The two, uh, the officers did fire shots. They didn't stay very long after that. They were transferred to a patrol, and they were gone shortly after that. So it was a it was a series of errors that, uh, you know, it, it, and, and tragically, everybody thought they were doing the right thing. Course. And uh, but and you know there's criticism about the weapons. You know they had shotguns. Well, the only people that were hit were the people they were aiming at. Unfortunately, one of them was was the undercover, and the suspect uh, Kathy wasn't hit. They pulled her out of the car. Uh, but you know the tinted windows, the lack of information. The uh, it was a ripoff all the way, and they right. were going to take them to another, another location and kill. Them. And and the responding detectives, they 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 were in attack mode to rescue their friends. So they're basically were treating them like a impromptu hostage rescue on the fly. Right. And it just it just went to shit. And exactly what it was. They're, well, think about their point. They're, they're what they know. Mm-hmm. What they know. What they've been told because they're around the corner. Remember, they're trying to stay out mm-hmm. of sight because a, a a van with tinted out windows running is right. is, is a sure sign that somebody's you know to stay away from. So they're around the corner. And when they drive up there, you know, just as they're reaching that door, they can't see in because right. the windows are over tinted. Just as they reach that door handle, they see gunshots go from the right rear, well, yeah. which they think is a suspect, right. they're told is a suspect, into the right front through the seat. He fired right through the seat. And so what What do they know at that minute? Oh, they only know what they know, and, and they reacted on what they believed. And it just it was a tragedy. Chief Rathburn was the was the chief over the department at the time. Was that right? I probably okay. that sounds about right. From a department standpoint, how did they treat that? As far as like taking care of the officers that had to go through that emotional uh, stress critical incident, and then also from your standpoint, was there any policy or any training? that was put together moving forward to uh, avoid that or address that? As far as, uh, you know, the, the, the training, the, that is what happened. And, and it was, uh, you know, it was, it, it was seen, they actually treated the officers fairly well. I, when I wrote my recommendation on discipline, the shooters, uh, I recommend no discipline. <laughs> Uh, that didn't go over very well. Well, there's no amount of days off or shitty assignments you can give anybody that's going to be worse than what they're going through. 
But, and I think a lot of times, and one thing that I always, and I, I, you know, I think we've all been guilty of it, criticizing people for doing things that we really don't know what happened, all the details. Right. Uh, you know, they ran up there and just blasted everybody in the, the back seat. Now, they ran up there, and just as they were going to open the door, they were going to open the door because mm-hmm. they did, you know, they were told that the bad guys were in the back seat. Just as they are opening the door, they see gunfire go from the right rear, which they think is a suspect. So they reacted. To the right front, which they think is an officer. Right. And so, okay, now, uh, you know, and, you know, the uh, the guy in the front, the suspect, who was killed by Larry, mm-hmm. he wasn't hit by any pellets. Kathy, the undercover in the driver's seat, she wasn't hit. Uh, the 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 responding officer pulled her out. He wasn't hit either. So it wasn't like you know it, it was kind of portrayed as just some wild firing. You know yeah. why did you have shotguns? Well, basically we didn't have anything else. We did have MP5s, but uh, you know very few of them. Uh, so I mean it wasn't it wasn't indiscriminate firing. They, they were they were just given misinformation. Right. So they all got transferred, obviously. Uh, which you know, which they needed to, and they would have left voluntarily. But I, I, they didn't get much time off, but uh, you know, maybe five days. But you know, I, when I I turned my recommendation into the chief, I'm like, nothing. I said, you know, That's under the circumstances, yeah. uh, and you know, I mean, they're suffering enough. You know, oh, so. they're still so yeah. There's five days off. Oh well, that's that really doesn't hard. mean anything yeah. when it comes to what they were dealing with mentally over that. But I don't think uh, they had any kind. They got any kind of counseling over that uh, that I know of at the time. Uh, it's pretty much you know here's your papers and you know you're going you're in patrol. Like I said one of them stayed till he retired. One of them, the sergeant was pretty much eligible to retire. He left, and then the other two weren't, but they left anyway. Uh, shortly after that. And what was the other question you asked about that? Was additional training or policy put in place to after that incident? Yeah, we we, we did. We did additional training. We we trained uh, more than we, than we ever had. Right. I, mostly places I go to, I try to start a training program. Mm-hmm. And narcotics is one of those places. They still have it. Uh, additional training because it is such a dangerous job. And back then, we were running more. We... We were running twice as many warrants as SWAT was running, narcotics warrants, mm-hmm. just because there were so many of them. Right. And there was a big push with the crack cocaine, and I know uh, Chief Rathburn, was, uh, he was pushing that. So we, we did have a lot of training, but we, we you know, obviously needed more, and, and uh, it was just one of those things. You know, you, you hate to say it, but those officers that responded were all experienced. I mean, I looked at, like, the two officers... We lost at Northwest uh, when I was a rookie. They both had two years on. You know, uh, Al Moore. What were their names? Uh, uh, Robert Woods and Al Moore. And uh, I think Al had about he had close to three, but not quite three. And Al had right at two. So, but these officers had you know ten plus and right and. and we were right in the middle of the drug wars, so we were like... 91, yeah. Yeah, we were... And that's when the gangs were rising, too, the gangs and the drugs yeah. went hand-in-hand. Hand. And this was this whole thing was just a rip-off all the way. And so, so yeah, we did more training, uh, but... Yeah. This 
I mean, it makes you sick to your stomach to hear the story. But I think the one thing that people need to remember, too, is uh, though we do go through an extensive academy, and it's probably increased since the time that you went through it, I would assume, right? <laughs> it was a week. What do you mean? A week. It's <laughs> yeah. longer than that now? But, uh, you know, I think the one thing that people need to remember, too, is that uh, we can train for as much as we want, but uh, we train for worst-case scenarios. But the scenarios don't always present themselves as we train them. And like Misty was talking about, I remember our training when you were over us. And uh, I remember also doing a lot of round robins throughout the city. And that was probably one of my favorite things when we create all the different scenarios at the different locations. There's really no way to uh, create the stress of an actual situation where we don't have people shooting back at us, right? Sims... Uh, will only take you so far, but it's also as far as the officers will take it. And looking back, of course, we've evolved quite a bit. Your footprint has been left on that piece that we've evolved greatly. And like you said, you, obviously it has to come from above, and there were individuals that supported that change, uh, especially in SWAT with doing the multiple entries, uh, the port and covers, uh, just the implementation of explosives into a breaching program and ballistics. You know, I remember that being a big thing too, but uh, we, we practice at it and prove it to, to work and show that we're just not out there haphazardly shooting things or blowing things up. But back to what I was saying is it's just you have to remind people too that just, you know, we can't create every single scenario and every single scenario doesn't evolve as it is. You train up to a certain point and to where you've accepted where the threshold of failure is and you know you strive past that for the success, and it's unfortunate that these incidents occur, but they occur all the time, you know, in multiple different agencies, whether it be a city or, uh, you know, the feds. It really doesn't matter, and it's uh, it's really gut-wrenching to hear it, but I know for a fact that our training has changed since then. Our, uh, I know we weren't on the department then, but I know that our vehicle takedowns, uh, we practiced rips extensively uh, since we were working with narcotics, and, and there was a lot of communication between them. And, of course, the, the surveillance is the ability to surveil the equipment that thereof is uh, greater now. So, uh, obviously, we take different precautions now. But, yeah, it's it's sad when we a department would, what what is five days to an individual who just is already probably want to kill themselves? after what, what happened and how sick they are. And that's the other piece that we look at now is the emotional support. You know, the ATO provides counseling for these officers. And since July 7th, 2016, not only police officers but firefighters, that thing has been swamped with uh, just endless people going to counseling. And uh, that's one thing that I'm glad that we, we do have now is that outlet because I'm sure back then that was probably not heard of anyway, right? You wouldn't go talk about that. You guys would probably go hit the bar and, or else you'd go home and just, uh, you know, deal with it yourself. Yeah, it, uh, you're exactly right. There was no, I don't think any of those officers got any help for the, you know, especially the shooters. I mean, they all felt responsible. And that's one thing that people don't understand that, I mean, I heard from people that were not there who felt responsible because they weren't there. Well, you know, if I was there, I think this could have gone different. And, I mean, they were seriously upset uh, because they could have done something different. But certainly the people there uh, should have got some kind of treatment. There just wasn't anything available. I mean, there was the uh, the department 
psychologist, but it was at that time, it, you know, it was not, and you didn't have to go. And I, I think, the, I think the programs like ATL—that's that's what you need. Something for the officers to talk to, and you know, people. I, I think you asked me one time about about that. You know, the five officers getting killed. <laughs> you ever done any? You ever been involved in anything like that? I said, no, nobody has. I mean, yeah. the, except for war. You know, I mean, that is that is. That is so such an extraordinary incident. We had two killed in, you know, in two weeks in patrol. We had uh, totally different instances. We had uh, three narcotics officers in about three years, and uh, but nothing like that. I just can't imagine the, uh, I, you know, it's it's got to be gut wrenching for the, those people. And and like I said, even people I, I find years later, people would say. You know, gosh, I, I took a day off. I was supposed to have been out there. Like a senior sergeant. I should have been out there. I could have, you know, helped that sergeant. Although he wasn't a rookie by any means. Like I said, he retired shortly after that. But he was in narcotics a lot longer than the sergeant who was there. So uh, these things, people keep that quiet. And I think it's important to get them talking about it. And like, hey, you know, you okay? You okay? You come in here and talk about it. Uh, because, uh, though, uh, you know, I haven't talked to any of those folks that left. I haven't seen them, hadn't heard from them, but, uh, you know, can't be. I'm sure they're still struggling. I'm sure they are. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, the sergeant broke down and cried in my office. Uh, you know, they called us to help, and we killed them. Yeah, that's what he, yeah, what do you say? Yeah. You know, well, and, and cops are, and, and, and firemen, and really any first responder, they <clears throat> they take on so much crap daily. It doesn't even have to be a critical incident like that uh, to slow. It's like a slow bleed, bleeding out. We get these pinpricks <clears throat> of, of wounds over the years, ment- mentally and physically, and it just slowly wears on you and wears on you. And then people only think about the critical incidents. Think about the daily stuff we have to go through. And, and then you know, and it, it's it just wears on us. Yeah, I had a uh, let me tell you this quick story, a war story. I had a, when I was a sergeant in tactical, it was tactical then. Couldn't be called SWAT because that was too offensive. Right. Uh, that was a hard. That was a hard thing to change. We were the tactical section, and people would ask you, you know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, SWAT. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know what that is because I see you know I've seen the TV show, but I was a sergeant and I hadn't been on the department that long. I I was SWAT, I was tactical as an officer, and I came back as a sergeant after a year in patrol, and I had my senior person on the team, uh, the assistant squad leader, great guy. Uh, he uh, where he had been on vacation. He comes back and he. Uh, we had a bunch of really good warrants and barricaded persons uh, that, you know, you know, murders and, you know, people shot, you know, shot at people and stuff. Really good, what well, we consider good operations. So we're, we're going after this guy. I think he shot somebody in his house. And so we're, we're, at the, uh, we're at the car in the driveway, our last point of cover and concealment before we're going to go in the house. And he, you know, I said he's a senior guy. 
Uh, well, he wasn't senior in the squad, but he was a ASL. And I, you got to remember in these squads, I had he had two thousand badge numbers on me, and uh, he's my ASL. And he, and I said, okay, fixing to get mask up, and uh, we're gonna shoot some gas and we'll make entry. And he looks at me, we're behind the car, you know, and he, I mean, you're like right there. And he's like, Sergeant, I can't do it. What do you mean? I said, I, I can't go. So we're on vacation, and, and every sudden, you know, and just like you said, these pinpricks. Uh-huh. You know, we did five big operations, which were, you know, we never shot anybody, never got shot at. But they were, you know, they were serious operations. And he said, I can't, I can't make entry. Right there behind the car. He just locked up. He just, yeah, he just, yeah. he's just like, I said, okay, just wait here. You know, and we, we cleared the house, got the guy or something. And he ended up retiring after that. And he just, it was just, he had his, you know, he had it. It was enough. You know, I, I don't know how long he did it, but uh, how long he'd been over there. But he had run a lot of operations and he just, he was at the, he was a, his cup was full, and he couldn't he couldn't make one more entry. And like I said, he ended up retiring uh, shortly after that. I just we just let him stay around the office, but you know, no no shame or anything like that. Oh my God, no! He no. did his part for a long time. Yeah, it, you can line up ten different officers with with different tenures on and different experiences, and everybody's going to have a different reaction mentally and, and physically. Right. Uh, to, to any incident, and if you stack on to each, all 10 of them, multiple ones, it's just, it's just like pouring concrete on them. It's just, it just weighs them down and weighs them down, and everybody's got a breaking point. No matter how tough you are, no matter how much training you've had, you, you can only take so much as a human. Uh, and it, I know there's a big stigma with first responders uh, in a military uh, of talking to people and getting help and understanding they recognizing they need help as opposed to turning into a bottle or or ruining their personal life because of their the professional weight is just smothering them and their only release is their personal life and a lot of them don't behave too well because they, they just have so much poured on them for years and years LT let's talk about hostage rescues in my opinion, I feel like that tests all skill sets, yes. and that's what you train for. Right. Can you talk about a significant hostage rescue in your career that sticks with you? Uh, yeah, like you said, the the only time you need to really go, you know, if, if you're getting shot at is, or, you know, you think you're going to get shot at is on a hostage rescue. The rest of things, narcotics, don't tell this narcotics officer. But I, I used to have a, a, a lecture, and I had part of that is five things you don't tell to a narcotics officer. <laughs> One is the the drugs aren't worth anybody's life. Uh, you can wait, you know, especially if you take fire. I remember it, uh, I, I saw an interview or I went to class with team leader uh, at Waco. He was the team that went up in the window upstairs, <clears throat> and... He got shot like two or three times. You know, he's the one that fell off the ladder, fell off the roof because he was getting shot. Anyway, I, I said, why did you make entry? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're getting, when they drove up, they're starting to get fired at. They're in the driveway getting shot at. 
And he said, I was, I was in Special Forces in Vietnam, and that's just what we did. You know, you charge through the ambush, you, you go in, and I said, well, you got women and children in there, you know, a lot of non-combatants. And he goes, I know, we wouldn't do it now, but we, we did it, that's why we did it. So a lot, a lot of hostage rescue is obviously the hardest thing to do, and it's uh, the most chance of somebody to get hurt, and usually somebody does get hurt. You know, either an officer, a hostage, suspect, somebody. So you try to avoid those. Uh, the other things, barricaded persons, you can gas them, you can wait. Uh, you know, drug warrant, you can gas them. The drugs are going to be gone, but, you know, it's a lot safer. And hostage rescue, you, you've got to go when you make that determination because the hostage is going to be killed. So the I guess the the... The biggest one I was involved in uh, was Duncanville Road that, that I was at. Uh, and it was a uh, suspect that already killed uh, two people. Was, what happened, his wife and his three girls moved in with her boyfriend. So she, he, one night he breaks in, he shoots the patio door open uh, and... He uh, kills, there was just some guy, a friend of the, the boyfriend, sleeping on the couch, kills him, goes in the bedroom and kills the boyfriend. She's laying in bed with the, the boyfriend. Kills him and uh, gets the girls and barricades himself in that bedroom with the, the suspect still lying on the floor dead. And the other suspect's in the living room, dead, very dead. And uh, so patrol gets there. And they call us. You know, this is one, two o'clock in the morning. And uh, you know, I get a call from the sergeant. They call my, one of my sergeants, and so he calls me and says, "Hey, this is what we got." And okay, so call everybody. Let's go. And while we're getting ready, uh, the guy started choking one of the girls. They could hear it through the door. They're in the the patrol's in the apartment, right outside, like right outside the bedroom door. So they hear this going on. And there's a sergeant there uh, and several officers. And he goes, and they, they and this is one thing I always go back to, they had nothing to make this hostage rescue with. They had shotguns and no shield, no rifles, uh, just a shotgun and pistols and a lot of courage. So they they make entry and he's in the corner. This is this is this suspect's third barricaded person. He'd been talked out twice. This was his third one. And so they, they look, he's in the corner, uh, knelt down. He's got the, he's sitting on his uh, on his butt and he's got the girls around him and the wife in front of him. They can barely even see him, and he starts shooting. And basically, sh he shoots them all. He has a shotgun. He shoots them all. And they go bailing out the room. They're all wounded, uh, you know, badly but not fatally. And then, of course, we get another call, get out here in a big hurry. So we did. So now we have two people we know are dead, citizens, three patrol officers shot. And uh, so we take up, we get out there and take up patrol officer positions and uh, start negotiating. And I had Wolfie. If you're out there, greatest negotiator ever. 
was a primary negotiator on this, did an excellent job. Uh, but he uh, he's talking to her. he's trying to get the the uh, the wife and the kids out. So they said, and you know, this, things are kind of calmed down now. And you know, after all these shootings, it, it's not an active shooter. He's not choking the kids. We're, we're again, we're we took up patrols position so we could. Uh, you know, we could hear what was going on inside the room. And uh, he gets a wife out, then he gets another a girl out, then he gets another girl out. And uh, we, we had one left, I guess. And that's, we figured this might be it. You know, he's going to kill himself, kill her. But uh, Wolf did a good job, and he, he got the last one out. And everything was, was fine with the world. And then... Uh, the uh, we had a my my guys my unit was there they'd been there all night and they had the unit from the other unit came in and they relieved the entry team and they uh, they shot tear gas so they said well, okay we're, he's in there by himself now so you know the, I got asked later what was your entry plan we, I didn't have one well I'm, we're not going in you know he's proved he's serious he shot three cops oh I, I forgot he also shot uh, one of mine on the vest that uh, didn't hurt him and he shot a shield on a port and cover team at the window so he's he shot at SWAT also and he uh, if it wasn't for the equipment that they had they we would have had at least two officers two more officers shot the one hit uh, his ballistic plate and the other one hit a on the door near the door and the other one hit the uh, shield of the guy at the window so, you know, you know this person's serious. And that's usually, that's what I talked about earlier, that you don't really, they, they usually aren't serious. You know, they'll give up. But when they, <laughs> they kind of prove himself on this one, you know, he killed two people that we know of. And, oh, he also, his, uh, homicide was already there because of the, the, the earlier shooting. So they bring up, they find his car and they bring a photo of his family and it's got, his wife and three kids, and there's X's over their faces. So, kind of one of those clues. And uh, I gave authorization to the sniper, if you see him, uh, shoot him. And, uh, but he never saw him. And so, because he was smart. I said, it was his third time. The guy holding the shield, which some people would call white trash, the guy holding the shield that was his first barricade person. That was mine too. I was standing right next <laughs> behind that shield. I didn't yeah. know you were there. Yeah, I was standing right right beside uh, Kelly White on that shield that got hit with that shotgun. And you know, you know how you got the shield up there, right? Did Gary tell you? He says, "Yeah, I think we're going to do uh, it." The, we weren't getting any response when we first got there, and we thought he might have killed everybody. So we wanted well, we might do something to get in there. So I said, uh, "What do you want to do?" And Gary, the sergeant, you know. When when I critical incident, if I got Gary as the entry team sergeant and Wolfie as the negotiator, I'm feeling pretty comfortable because they do both do excellent jobs. So why that would put a bang through the window on a pole just to see what happens? And when the bang went off, uh, he he started shooting, and he shot the shield first. What two times, three times? With a uh, shot, it, it hit that whole side of that left side of that shield. Yeah, and. And then he, he swung around. He thought somebody was coming through his door. And he shot through the door, and that's how he hit 
guy when the, in the equipment. He wasn't hurt, but uh, he would have been if he hadn't had that gear on. And then, anyway, so at, at the end, uh, we, we start shooting tear gas, try to get him come out. And I was just going to, you know, I had the whole building evacuated. If we had to, we'd burn the whole building down before I was going to send somebody in there. And, uh, or he died, you know, of overexposure to the gas. And uh, so the, the team that relieved, they decided they need to make entry. And uh, they, go, they go in the room, they can't find him, he's in the bathroom. And uh, the, uh, Doug, uh, one of the entry team guys, he ends up, he's in the bathtub pointing the shotgun at him. Doug shoots him and, uh, and ends the thing right there. So that was, uh, that was probably the, the biggest, uh, the biggest one I did. Real hostage rescues are pretty few and far between. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they don't happen that often. They're usually a, a family disturbance, you know, family violence and, or your own kids. They definitely happen. The one you went on and I fortunately wasn't there, uh, ended tragically and, uh, you know, so there's always the potential. You you, you don't think it's going to happen with somebody's kids, and and again, due to negotiations, he had three kids and a wife in there who was sleeping with this guy, and negotiator was able to talk him out of it and save those all those people's lives, mm-hmm. save the wife and three kids. No no doubt in my mind. The the three uh, patrol officers that got shot, it was Patino. Coffee and Fluche. Okay. Coffee is actually going to come on with us at some point and, and, and talk about that incident. So people okay. are going to hear more about that from uh, from his perspective and, and the injuries that he suffered and had to recover from. I'm excited to talk to him about ask that. Him, ask him about the Motel 6, too. Another barricaded person he was involved in. Okay. Yeah. ALT, hey, uh, one, one last question. You mentioned you want to discuss officers making the situation worse after a critical incident. You want to touch on that? Yeah, and that, that's uh, kind of going back to negotiators. And uh, when I was a sergeant in tactical, we had if if you, you know one squad was assigned to the inner perimeter, one side squad was assigned to entry, and one squad was assigned to negotiations. That's how we did it back then. So I was assigned on this. Uh, it was a family violence and the guy the wife had escaped so the guy's in there by himself yeah you know not a big deal not a hostage rescue it's a barricaded person you know the guy's got no leverage it's just him and so we, uh, we my negotiator starts negotiating and uh name was loopy and he was my asl my assistant squad leader good experienced guy so he's negotiating with this guy and you know, a negotiator, just like any any negotiation, any interaction with people, you try to to get to know them. You try to make them feel uh, empathy for, you know, uh, you and you for them so you can talk them out. Hey, I don't want you to get hurt. You know, this is not, uh, it's not the end of the world. You haven't killed anybody. Come on out. You, yes, you're going to have to do some jail time, but... You know, after that, you know, who knows? Maybe you and the spouse can get back, get back together. So that's kind of the way you do it. So you you talk about personal things. Oh yeah, I've got a wife too. Yeah, sometimes she yeah she acts that way too. But 
you know, I, I, I still love her and I want to stay together. And, you know, and, and so you're talking this personal stuff. So he keeps talking about suicide. It's always the, you know, which happens quite a bit in uh, barricaded persons. And uh, so he, he tried to talk him away from it. Then he keeps going back to, well, finally, after about four hours. Now think about this. this guy's on the phone with a person, a human being, for four hours, probably a little bit longer, talking about his problems. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you, I've got these bills. Yeah, me too. You know, I've got the same problems. And so you get to kind of like the, the person. Uh, you know, what has he really done? You know, he sold his wife, okay. But, you know, he's, you know, he gives you reasons for all that. So you have some, a lot of empathy for him. You should and, and generally do, and a person will have empathy for somebody in that situation. So he, anyway, he, he, so one, one time he's talking about the suicide and he said, oh, I'm just going to end it. And then we hear this pop and it, it's weird when you uh, shot inside an apartment, it always sounds really muffled, but, you know, especially gets up against a person's head. So the, I got an entry team outside. I said, uh, we think, and then we hear, you know, the, the you know, he falls, the phone mm -hmm. falls, he falls on the ground. And so I, the entry team, uh, what do you think? He's well, I think he just shot himself. Okay, make entry. So they go in there. Yeah, he's he's just killed himself. He's dead. I'll send the ambulance up there. So I'm in the command post, you know, with with Loopy, and I'm like, uh, okay, back it up. Let's go. Let's go home. So I go to the apartment. And I want to, you know, I'm just I shouldn't. I'm just rubbernecking. I want to see the guy, you know. So I go in there and I walk in the, in the apartment. The paramedics are working on him. And he's obviously very dead. He shot himself in the head. And I turn around, I'm looking at him, and I turn around, and Loopy's standing at the door with this look on his face, just horror, you know, that his mouth's open, and he failed. You know, and here's this guy, you know, Bill or whatever his name was, you know, that he's been talking to for four hours instead, and because he failed is, you know, not that's not what happened, but that's what obviously what he thinks because he wants it to come out right, and most times they do. And so after that, I uh, I made sure that you know when when that happens, somebody stays with that negotiator and talks to him. And uh, the part about making things worse, the the rest of the, the guys are the worst because they'll start. Oh yeah, you killed another one. Huh? Yeah, you know, and there's, you know, it's 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 a tough love situation in, in in these groups, but there's times when you can make things so much better by just you know, hey, you know, you did the best you could, you know, it was his choice, not yours, and that, that's a lot of these negotiators have had multiple people kill themselves while they're talking to, them. you know, some even face to face. Uh, so it, it's, you know, I, I, I try to tell the, the officers, you know, you, you know, you need to find out the facts of what happened and, and not criticize and not know what's going on because so many people are quick to, well, you know, he, he was, it was his fault. So that's, that's, that's one thing. And negotiators, you know, they, they, get, they get a bad rap, but they, you know, they pretty much talk most people out. Not always. Uh, sometimes the entry team has to go in and get them out. Sometimes they gas them out. Sometimes they, they kill themselves. But most of the time, you've got a good negotiator who has some time. They can talk to him. But just think of what that feels like, no matter who the person is. I mean, even, even the guy on 7-7. Seven, seven. 
you know, after a while, it's kind of like, well, I know what he did, but he's still a human being. And, you know, your job is to talk him out. So uh, I would, I guess, support your local uh, negotiator. Yeah, have empathy for him as opposed yeah. to, and, and not a, not trying to put humor on him and, uh, and jack it with him because, you know, I, I'm sure that whoever's would be joking saying, oh, you failed, you lost another one, it's, they're trying to joke and try to make light of the situation, but they don't understand how that would feel to a negotiator because that is their job. Yeah. To yeah, keep that it, person alive and surrender. Yeah, and it's, uh, and that's all I know. You know, people think it's funny, but to the negotiator, it's not funny. Right. You know, it's, uh, they have some empathy, and not, that is not hostage negotiation. That's, it happens as a patrol, you know, car accidents, uh, you know, officers hit people. Uh, you know, killed in accidents and things like that and uh, you know I mean just put yourself in that person's place you know how would you feel you know that uh, it was you did it you know it was an accident but uh, uh, you did it or maybe I could have said something a little bit different and you know and he'd still be with us I, I know exactly what you're talking about I've seen that before there was an officer that um, that he was speeding and his partner they got in a bad crash. They're on Pennsylvania, and his partner uh, ended up dying from the injuries. And I've heard people jack with him saying, "Oh, you don't want to ride with him," or you know, or you you know, it's like getting in a death trap, jacking with him. And you know, he laughed it off and he joked, but I'm sure it bothered him. Matter of fact, I know it bothered him. Not bothered and everybody, you. Everybody's shitty sense of humor. There's a time and place, and I'm and I joke a lot, hmm. but I know that. But I also have empathy for people who are going through something because. it's I don't make a point to try to knock people down just to give myself a chuckle, you know? And I know a lot of people do that. And I don't like that. Yeah. I, you know, just to touch on that real fast is, I think that's too, with our profession, we, uh, sometimes we don't know, we separate ourselves from a lot of things and part of it is comedy. And sometimes we're our own worst enemy when we, uh, like to joke around about stuff out there. We've all done it, and it's uh, we never think about what's on the other receiving end until you're the one on the receiving end, and then it's not so funny anymore. So, yeah, I know the the uh, the hostage rescue that uh, Wist- Misty was involved in, uh, where the the child was killed. Um, I, I I have copies of the crime scene photos. What th- what they do after uh, shooting, they will take photos of the officers in the gear they were wearing. So they, well, you know, I didn't know who they were. Well, you know, they're wearing this thing that says police on this chest. So we'll take photographs. And those officers, you know, I knew, knew them all, and I, I could barely recognize them. But just their faces, they were so drained, and they were so sad about what happened, because they couldn't save the child. Well... Uh, Lieutenant Owens, I want to thank you for coming on. I think we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. And I want you to go ahead and, uh, what's your podcast? Swap, Swap Brothers. Swap Brothers. And listen to it. I've listened, I've listened to it as well. Uh, I want the other listeners to support us to go and support uh, Lieutenant Bob Owens. has given over four decades to the city. And he has helped thousands of officers become better professionals save lives, and keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate you. Thank Thank you. Thanks for your service. Thank you. I want to thank you for your incredible leadership. True. It's rare, and it's exceptional.
exceptional. That is true. Now, Thank you, Mister. <laughs> I want you to go and hug those beautiful grandkids Minnie Caruth was telling me about. And so this the joy of your life now. Oh yeah, yeah. We just had a first birthday when the little one just had her first birthday. Party was on Saturday. Well, go hug them tight. Two girls. Thank you so much. Thanks for everything you do, Wilson. Thank you. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey Mrs. Hey Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. I'll never give up on you.